to the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel, Jurassic Park. And also about that too. My name's Ryan Rogers and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 40, Control Part B, recorded as a companion to the podcast in Part A. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, continue, thank you to Kristoff Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. Check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro and outro are both Late Bloomer, because Late Bloomer is my favorite track. Alright, also, this episode is not for everyone. The regular podcast is family-friendly. This episode is distinctly separate, because this episode is not for kids. This episode contains descriptions of scenes and events of a sexual nature, including sexual assault, and a true story of a 28-year-old school teacher who was raped and murdered on January 2nd, 1973 in New York City. And I'm going to swear in this episode too, so listener discretion is advised. Looking for Mr. Goodbites. When a reader reads a metaphor, a simile, an analogy, or an anecdote, the reader is consciously reading two, and perhaps sometimes more, thoughts in a single expression. The first is the literal words, on the page, but also we're reading a concurrent message that tells us how those first words transfer their meanings onto the text we're reading. They're powerful mechanisms for imbuing significant meaning and heightening the reading experience, making moments more engaging. In many ways, metaphors, similes, analogies, they're like a good joke. You're led through a joke's narrative following along a pattern which misdirects you away from a surprising punchline that subverts your expectations. Hilarious! Understanding a joke requires that you read the narrative twice, interpreting both what's expected and then the subversion of your expectations. If you can't read both narratives simultaneously, you don't get the joke. Sometimes these concurrent narratives are very poetic. The author is employing their academic understanding of ancient mythos, classical tragedy, and consequential political science. In these cases, the imbued meaning is more difficult to unpack. It must be explicated through careful analysis to truly relate the unspoken but intended message from a text. And these explications reveal themselves through multiple readings, giving us enlightened perspectives on an author and their socioeconomic status, their ideologies, and their prejudices. And often you'll read a metaphor and you'll know what's being said. For example, that's music to my ears. You understand what that means. And other times you'll read something and you know you're going to have to think that thing over a couple times. For example, this is the first thing I have understood. Time is the echo of an axe within a wood. By Philip Larkin. English poet Philip Larkin is saying something in this quote. And it sounds pretty important. But boy, it's a head scratcher. He's starting with the first thing he's understood, but it might be the last thing I'll ever understand. In Jurassic Park, the novel has some references that are a little dated which means my generation may not immediately catch a reference's meaning. For example, Kilroy was here, who we talked about on page 175, doesn't carry any meaning to me. A Canadian born in 1981 with zero military experience. Sorry. Looking into it, it seems that soldiers in military service would write Kilroy was here with a ziggy-looking little doodle as if it were graffiti while on tour of duty. Reportedly, this little tag was found all over the place during the Second World War, as soldiers would draw it where they were stationed, encamped, or had visited. It's used in Jurassic Park to describe the computer programmer Dennis Nedry's little addition to the park's operating system's code, a trap door, which granted him universal access to any of the park's systems. It's explained that it was common practice for programmers 
though frowned upon by their clients, to leave these trap doors that grant them unlimited access to the system, like military servicemen left Kilroy was here, wherever they had worked. The parallel doesn't fully equate, as the graffiti certainly doesn't grant military service personnel anywhere close to the advantages that a trap door does for a programmer. But perhaps the reference hopes to relate that programmers have a, a professional brotherhood akin to a military serviceman. Uh, again, that's unlikely to equate. <laughs> Let's just measure this reference as it, as it is as like not a very good one. You know, Kilroy was here, just doesn't seem to measure up. Obviously, the computer programmers at their job do not experience the same types of duties as military personnel while on tour. That's a false equivalency, a non-starter, but would Nedry psychologically view his efforts as heroic, embattled, and courageous? Perhaps this is Crichton demonstrating that Nedry views himself like a warrior rather than a computer nerd worthy of greater respect, like a veteran returned from war than the boyish slob he is described as. That's a reference that jumps out at you. It is obviously a reference to something, but I had to look into it a bit deeper to explicate its meaning. And through doing that, I came to learn something of greater cultural relevance to the generations that came before me and how they experienced the world. And I could transfer some of those qualities onto Dennis Nedry. So doing a second reading, looking deeper into things that stick out, is worthwhile. Upon researching an innocuous little reference in this book, another one, I've reached a greater realization about Michael Crichton and his career. Not only was my original supposition that movies based on Crichton's novels are as impactful as Jurassic Park, the novel or the film, impossible to live up to, but my view on the heroic author I've ever since looked up to has been, hmm, perhaps brought into a clearer focus. I always considered Crichton as an incredibly tall, imaginative, scientifically focused novelist with a knack for getting his works adapted into low-budget, wobbly little films that we all can enjoy, with a particularly high-budget film serving as the exception. I can picture him wearing glasses and standing with an extraordinarily erect posture, like a tall version of Gregory Peck's Atticus Finch, the picture of an honorable man. But with a quick little reference attributed to computer nerd Dennis Nedry, I started pulling on a thread that undid that idealized image I'd conjured. In Jurassic Park, the novel, in the section of the story under the fourth iteration, programmers are digging through the commands and keystrokes that Dennis Nedry had used to execute a program he called White Rabbit Object, which turned off the security systems throughout Jurassic Park. While investigating his actions, the team reveals that his password to log on to the system is Mr. Goodbytes, on page 230. Mr. Goodbytes. That's got to be a reference to something. So I dug around, read, and researched what it may mean. But there's this tiny little thread of connectivity that lingers for me. A thread that if you follow it, you find connected to many other Michael Crichton's other works of media. I found that Crichton was a bit more, let's say, red-blooded than I'd previously imagined. It's a thread you don't easily find. One that you'd almost certainly overlook and not give a second's notice. But I did pull on that thread. Here's what I found. It is entirely believable that Mr. Goodbites is a direct reference to the film Looking for Mr. Goodbar from 1977. There's enough evidence in the text and in what we know about Michael Crichton's career to reasonably prove it. And after proving that, let's consider how that reference further informs our reading of Nedry and of Crichton. There are some hints in the text that suggest there's a link between Nedry's Mr. Goodbites and Looking for Mr. Goodbar. There are a variety of truths about Michael Crichton's career that strongly suggest that alluding to looking for Mr. Goodbar is something that he would likely do. So what in the text suggests that Nedry might do this? Michael Crichton's novel Jurassic Park offers three textual references which suggest that Nedry's login credentials, Mr. Goodbites, is a reference to looking for Mr. Goodbar. First, there are textual 
and phonemic similarities which suggest an intentional relationship between the two names. Second, the text offers examples of Dennis Nedry employing cultural references in his computer programming. And third, the text includes an actor at Jurassic Park who also starred in the film Looking for Mr. Goodbar. There's a strong similarity between the two names, Mr. Goodbites and Mr. Goodbar, strengthening the interpretation that we, as readers, are meant to make a referential connection. The first textual proof that Mr. Goodbite's references looking for Mr. Goodbar is in the graphic and phonemic similarities. They look very similar. Graphically, the first seven letters are identical. Second, they sound very similar. They both contain four syllables and are phonetically built with the same phonemic pattern of M, T, G, and B. Mr. Goodbar, Mr. Goodbites, hitting at the beginning of each syllable. Similarities are strong enough that one should interpret that there is a meaningful, intentional reference to the film being made. The novel also demonstrates that Nedry adopts references to popular culture in his computer programming. The most prominent featured example is White Rabbit Object on 230, which is an obvious reference to C.S. Lewis's 1865 book Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. The White Rabbit has become a common trope in popular culture as a MacGuffin-esque storytelling technique that draws heroes and heroines into an adventure. John Arnold sees the reference and considers it a private joke that Nedry wrote into the code. Nedry, employing a reference to pop culture in his login credentials, would be a second example that he's using cultural references for his less professional elements in his coding. So his login credentials and the trap door he programmed reflect his personality. It is demonstrably within Nedry's character to adopt a pop culture reference in his work, in this case as his login credentials. And third, the text also introduces actor Richard Kiley, who starred in Looking for Mr. Goodbar as a character in the novel. Kiley starred in the film as Teresa's strict and repressive father, Mr. Dunn. In the novel, Richard Kiley is characterized as having a sonorous voice, and character Ed Regis is proud to say, quote, we spared no expense, inferring that Kiley is an A-list celebrity to affiliate with the park. Kiley's inclusion in the novel serves to heighten Jurassic Park's prestige for the sake of marketability, which is further supported by his introduction by, to the reader by the marketing specialist, Ed Regis. Kylie's incredible acting career earned him Golden Globe Awards for Best Actor in a Television Series Drama and a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Drama Series. He was winning these awards in the 1980s, right around when Michael Crichton would have been researching and writing this novel. These three textual examples suggest that Nedry's login credentials, Mr. Goodbites, is a reference to looking for Mr. Goodbar. And Crichton was certainly aware of this film. The second consideration is whether Michael Crichton wrote Mr. Goodbites as a reference to the film. The film was distinguished, successful, acclaimed, popular, and has a history of being a reference in popular culture, which Crichton would have been fully aware of. As well, the professional awareness of someone who was adapting novels into film would have probably had this film on his radar too. There was evidence that this movie was likely right up his alley as well, and I'll get to that last. First, the film was adapted from a New York Times number one best-selling novel of the same name written by acclaimed author Judith Rosner. Adapting novels into scripts was something Crichton was also doing in the 1970s, so as a peer, he may have been paying attention to these types of films and how they were working. Rosner reportedly detested the movie, but, like Diane Keaton in it, but more importantly, it was profitably adapted to the screen. The film earned $22.5 million in two Academy Award nominations for Best Supporting Actress and Best Cinematography, demonstrating its commercial viability. And it was successful enough to coin a popular phrase, Looking for Mr. Goodbar. Looking for Mr. Goodbar is based on a true crime story, the 1973 rape and murder of a Manhattan schoolteacher. Her name was Roseanne Quinn. 
When the film was released, a true crime novel by Lacey Fosberg named Closing Time, The True Story of the Good Bar Murder, became available, offering a fictionalized portrayal of the actual events. The film was popular enough, it spurred a made-for-TV sequel, Trackdown, Finding the Good Bar Killer, in 1983. And the expression has survived, perhaps in obscurity? I'm not sure, since its inception in 1975. It definitely held a space in popular discourse in its time, as Weird Al included it in his 1985 song, Dare to be Stupid, which is quoted as, Look for Mr. Good Bar. And if you haven't heard the song Dare to be Stupid, it's pure genius. Uh, the Simpsons also included a reference to the expression as a gag in their season six episode, Homer Badman, in 1994, quoted as, The front desk is looking for Mr. Goodbar, if you recall that. They're at like a candy symposium or something. And many years later, The Simpsons returned to that reference in episode 20 of season 28, titled Looking for Mr. Goodbart, in 2017. It's a common trope with The Simpsons to include movie titles and other cultural references in their episode titles. And hip-hop artist LL Cool J released an album featuring the song Mr. Goodbar on his 1990 album Mama Said Knock You Out. If it's popular enough to be included as quick little gags decades after the film, then there's no reason to think it couldn't be equally included by Crichton in Jurassic Park. And I believe comparing Crichton's early movies and novels to Looking for Mr. Goodbar reveals that this was a film that was in his quote-unquote wheelhouse. Not only would he have known about Looking for Mr. Goodbar, but I think this movie would have been right up his alley. The movie is a sad story of Teresa, who leads a sexually promiscuous lifestyle in New York City against the wishes of her overbearing and strict father. In terms of plot, Teresa is a button-down teacher by day, but sexually adventurous with, with strangers at night, and in her quest for satisfaction, she gets into some non-Catholic situations, sort of a, a Jekyll and Hyde situation with her. The movie is serious and sexy, and Crichton was very much in this sphere of making similar films, not quite like Looking for Mr. Goodbar, but more sci-fi sexy. Allow me to digress as we review some of Crichton's career. Let's start with uh, the first one I saw other than Jurassic Park. I remember watching The Andromeda Strain in 1971 when I was a teenager. I was eagerly catching up on all the Michael Crichton products I could find after entering into his career through the usual way, Jurassic Park. The book and the film were extraordinary to me, giving dinosaurs a professional and adult treatment that was desperately lacking in my life. And so, of course, another film based on one of Crichton's novels should be equally rewarding, right? The Andromeda Strain was kind of like a washed-out, grainy film, and there were, there were only three things I can really remember from it. One, how they discovered a cure for the disease. Two, the film was bathed in like this strange red color. And three, there were bare breasts in it for no particular reason. The Andromeda Strain is about an infectious and deadly alien disease that comes to Earth when a satellite falls from orbit, and desperate virologists scramble through a subterranean laboratory to find a cure. In the first act, there are these strange still shots of people who have dropped dead in their everyday lives, and I recall them being bathed in like a red lens. And I recall watching the bodies laying in their households and in the streets dead from the disease, and there was a lengthy shot of just a dead lady with a swell pair of breasts. And it stuck out for two reasons. First, hey, breasts. But second, the shot was just suddenly on screen without real rhyme or reason. I mean, yes, it was another dead person, so it matched the criteria for the sequence. But like, what a surprise to see an undressed woman beautifully laid out for a very lengthy moment. And then she was gone. And the breasts were gone. But it influenced my viewing of the remainder of the film with a continuous and lingering thought. Perhaps, perhaps there, were, there will be more breasts. There, there were no more breasts. <laughs> How does this connect looking mystery? Looking for Mr. Goodbar to Jurassic Park, you ask? <laughs> Good question. I, I think I can argue that the female form and tragic movies are exactly what Crichton was into early in his career. 
and there's a long list of bare breasts in his weird sci-fi movies that suggest to me he was certainly watching major motion pictures about female sexuality. So for your consideration, Crichton made The Andromeda Strain, the book, in 1971. One shot of a topless woman lasting eight seconds as it zooms up, showing full breasts and nipples is, is recorded. And there's another shot of nude males from the back. Another... TV movie or another movie he does is Pursuit in 1972, which he wrote as binary and it portrays sexual harassment, though its plot focuses on a presidential assassination attempt. Then there's Westworld in 1973. This includes a sex scene and scenes relating to the availability of android prostitutes. HBO's reboot of Westworld in 2016 was no less casually naked, and Crichton developed this with producer Paul Lazarus III. Extreme close up from 1973. Lazarus III had such a good time with the android prostitutes that he reportedly approached Crichton to make a subsequent film that featured nudity, quote, without creating some kind of uproar that ruins people, according to Crichton's Wikipedia entry. The idea was to marry a stag film with an action thriller. But let's be real, the idea was built around the hopes of getting nudity into the project. Then out came Looking for Mr. Goodbar in 1977, as described above. You think Crichton wasn't looking to see what could be done to put naked ladies into his flicks? Coma comes out in 1978, where comatose patients are showing their breasts in the opening minutes of the movie. Within five minutes, the lead actress takes a shower, one of those nude showers, and there's subsequent full frontal shots as she looks out of a high-rise window. The Great Train Robbery comes out in 1978 as well. Women undress and seduce the men. It starred Sean Connery, who was making an entire career out of this premise. Then in 1981, there was the film Looker. This was released before the PG-13 rating existed, so it was just rated PG. One reviewer says, quote, There are so many bare breasts in this film, exclamation mark. This film was about perfect women getting plastic surgery and incorporated some sci-fi thing about a murderer killing all the models. Runaway, 1984. Gene Simmons stars as a crazy villain who programs household appliances to kill. An interesting note to this film is that Crichton met his fourth wife, Anne-Marie Martin, on set in Vancouver. And her role in the film was Hooker at the Bar. This became Crichton's longest-lasting marriage, and she co-wrote Twister with him in 1996. What's fascinating to me as a personal aside is that the movie review for Runaway, this movie here, was titled Looking for Mr. Nutbar. So again, here's Crichton being connected to this expression. And it also must be noted, Crichton is on set during the filming of this movie. I mean, he must be there to ensure that they're adapting his scripts to his satisfaction, right? He wanted to make sure that Hooker at Bar wasn't being portrayed incorrectly. And then he married her. Uh, then Jurassic Park comes out in 1993. All the dinosaurs are naked through the entire movie. Rising Sun comes out in 1993 as well. It's rated R for strong sexuality, language, and some violence. And Disclosure comes out in 1994. Uh, Michael Douglas and Demi Moore rated R because it was primarily all about sex and sexual assault. So here we stand. We've tugged at the thread, looking to see what looking for Mr. Goodbar could possibly have in a relationship to Jurassic Park. And basically... My entire image of Michael Crichton as Atticus Finch falls to the floor, and behind the tight vest and handsome glasses, we find out that he was Larry Flint all along. Yeah, that's an exaggeration, of course, but the context reframes my vision of Crichton. He wasn't writing Disney movies, political thrillers, or action comedies. He was developing movies that warned against the dangers of letting perverts develop technology. Cautioning us against letting perverts develop technology. That's basically the high concept for Jurassic Park, set as an action thriller. The seminal part, though, is that there's perversion. And looking for Mr. Goodbar was definitely about perversion, deviating from orthodoxy in pursuit of a more rewarding life. 
And I'll bet Crichton bought more than one ticket for that movie. So, would Crichton put a reference to looking for Mr. Goodbar into his novel? Darn tootin' he would. So what does the phrase looking for Mr. Goodbar mean? What is, it, what is meant by suggesting that someone is looking for Mr. Goodbar? In Rosner's novel, Mr. Goodbar is the name of a fictional pub with one wall covered in candy wrapper collage, presumably including wrappers from the Hershey Company's popular product, Mr. Goodbar. Uh, and that is a chocolate and peanut candy bar introduced by Hershey's during the Great Depression, and it was marketed as a meal replacement, if you, if you wanted to know. The protagonist, Teresa Dunn, frequents a couple bars in the novel, regularly meeting new men for casual and sometimes perverted sexual encounters. Not all the men she meets are interested in her deviant sexuality, though. This particular bar, Mr. Good Bar, is where she will meet the man who murders her, which gives this novel's title a sense of tragic foreshadowing. This name implies that she's, quote, looking for what's coming to her, making this another example of plenty of expressions that are rooted in that karmic ideology of if you do good things, good things will happen to you. If you do bad things, bad things will happen to you. These expressions come out like you're asking for it or you're cruising for a bruising or you're going to get what's coming to you. Today, you'll see it on the internet all the time. It's uh, fuck around and find out is what they say. <laughs> he fucked around. He found out. These types of expressions caution if you keep acting a certain way, you're going to receive physical harm. Looking for Mr. Goodbar certainly can be read as you've come looking for trouble, or that a woman pursuing a sexually promiscuous lifestyle is dangerous. It's problematic in its victim blaming, but that's what it means. Rosner cleverly co-opted the expression looking for Mr. Right, the endless task in looking for an ideal husband, and created this dark new expression overloaded with horrible and culturally historic baggage. It's that kind of poetry that makes Rosner one of the acclaimed writers versus just a writer. Looking for Mr. Goodbar is tragically infused with dramatic irony and foreshadowing as it conflates two meanings. First, Teresa Dunn is looking for Mr. Right, or more accurately looking for, you know, Mr. Right now, like a fling, rather than a committed relationship. And second, her means of searching is risky. Objectively, the expression is judgmental, castigating its object for behavior that's incongruous with the castigator's moral code. In looking for Mr. Goodbar, that code is strictly Catholic, espoused by her overbearing father, portrayed by the aforementioned Richard Kiley, which is incongruous with her drug use, drinking, and promiscuity. Expressed properly, the phrase requires an object who is pursuing romantic pleasures, but employing believed to be immoral methods to pursue that pleasure, and the results may be consequential corporeal harm. Believing that Mr. Goodbites is referencing the film Looking for Mr. Goodbar, what is Creighton's intent in connecting it to Dennis Nedry? Nedry is smart, educated, and boyish-looking, but also a messy fat man, we're told, and a slob, and a fat bastard, and a fat slob. The characters John Hammond, John Arnold, and Robert Muldoon each take turns being horribly harsh towards Nedry, but mostly only after he's revealed that he's sabotaged the entire park's control systems, jeopardizing their lives and careers. Also, Crichton is very on the nose by making Nedry the most transparent anagram possible for nerdy. The expression looking for Mr. Goodbar requires two opposite perspectives. First, the pursuer of pleasure's perspective, which is focused on gaining pleasure, and they don't see the harm that's coming to them. The second perspective is the speaker of the expression, who can see the error of the pursuer's ways, and they're cautioning against it. Fabulously, Dennis Nedry equates to Teresa Dunn quite well. Nedry is a respectable, hardworking computer programmer by day, with a dark underside, where he plots corporate espionage, theft and trickery for the purposes of gaining a huge payday, described as, quote, 10 years of income and a single tax-free shot. Teresa Dunn was a respectable, hardworking teacher at a school for deaf children with a dark underside where she took drugs, drank, and led a promiscuous lifestyle for the fun of it. 
They're terrifically analogous. Similarly, as Nedry is committing his immoral deeds in pursuit of his payday, he's gruesomely murdered. And we know Teresa Dunn was also gruesomely murdered. There is another incredible connection between Teresa Dunn and Dennis Nedry, both relating to Richard Kiley. In the novel, Jurassic Park, Richard Kiley was hired to be the voice of the automatic tour guide in each of the cars on the tour. Earlier in the tour, on 142, Kylie's voice describes the Dilophosaurs and reveals they secrete hematotoxin from glands in their mouth. Crichton specifically identifies that Nedry hadn't been on the tour, we're told on page 196, and cannot identify what dinosaurs are around him. If he had taken the tour, he would have literally heard Richard Kylie's voice tell him that Dilophosaurs spit blinding toxins. Had Nedry listened, he may have been spared his gruesome fate. Similarly, in Looking for Mr. Goodbar, Richard Kiley acts as Teresa's father, Mr. Dunn, and Teresa literally heard Richard Kiley's voice tell her that her immoral lifestyle was going to send her to hell, and had she listened, she may have been spared her gruesome fate as well. The voice of Richard Kiley, they spared no expense. Here's the kicker. After Nedry executes White Rabbit Object, he leaves his computer station and begins stealing embryos and taking them to the East Dock. As soon as he's left the room, people start looking for him by checking the washrooms and browsing security footage, desperate to have him return functionality to the park's security systems. They are literally looking for Mr. Goodbites. That's who he is. His login credential is Mr. Goodbites. And they're looking for him, looking for Mr. Goodbites. And not just as a quick reference, they spend a lot of time looking for him. They start looking on page 201. They do not find him until page 273. He's been dead in the park for like 12 hours in the story by that point. And that karmic trope that bad things come to bad people, Robert Muldoon looks at the corpse and says, not a nice way to go. Maybe there's justice in this world after all. And to further add the perspective of castigation, which is required in the application of this expression, Muldoon leaves the corpse to rot and be scavenged upon. Castigation doesn't get much worse than that. Dennis Nedry was Mr. Goodbites, and he was looking for Mr. Goodbar. So how does this reference inform our vision of Dennis Nedry? Well, it's far from explicit, but very little of this connectivity is obvious. There's just a quick reference. You race right past it, Mr. Goodbites, because the narrative is rushing forward, but that reference stands out. I breezed right by it, even though it made me wonder, what was that all about? And it begged for explication. And now, how is our reading of Dennis Nedry further informed? Why would Nedry use this name? Do we read him as a fan of the movie, fantasizing about meeting women like Teresa Dunn? Or is the reference singularly useful in a subsequent reading of the Jurassic Park? Rereading the text with Nedry as a foil for Teresa Dunn, we don't get to see him have any terrific romps. But we see that his trapdoor is something of a guilty pleasure that he and coders like him sneak into his programming. Perhaps the connection to Teresa Dunn begs the reader to view Nedry with more sympathy. He is, after all, written as a sympathetic villain who was given a vague design parameter, but no description of how the command control system was going to be used. He considered it, quote, working in the dark, and, quote, now that the program was up and running, he wasn't surprised to learn there were bugs. What did they expect? What was worse, late in the schedule, InGen demanded extensive modifications to the system, but hadn't been willing to pay for them, arguing that they should be included under the original contract. The novel says, quote, InGen threatened lawsuits, and to imply that Nedry was unreliable with his other clients. In other words, blackmail. Nedry was forced to eat his overages. This was a rich company that refused to pay him and threatened to blackmail him. InGen is the villain here, threatening to ruin Nedry's career. For Nedry, this was about getting even. It was also about getting rich, too. 
InGen's spotty reputation and misbehavior, as in blackmailing people into free labor, is widely accredited to the corporation's leadership by John Hammond, who basically walks the world with unfettered power to make his dreams come true. Hammond is charming when trying to be influential, but very nasty when defensive. And the EPA's Bob Morris characterization of Hammond is more of an evil arch-villain, we're told on page 42. Hammond reveals he despises almost every employee he hired before he dies, and despises his own grandkids' behavior, too. We're told on page 381, 383. No, Nedry wasn't teaching deaf school children like Teresa Dunn, but he's not the novel's greedy villain either. He was just doing his job, and he did it very well. He built a hell of a goddamn system, according to John Arnold. The greedy villain is John Hammond, who lured other greedy villains to work for him so they can greedily clone extinct prehistoric villains for profit. Prehistoric villains being velociraptors. Hammond enters into the entertainment sphere of genetic engineering because it's far more profitable than healthcare or medicine, specifically adding, personally, I would never help mankind. Perhaps Nedry wasn't pursuing pleasure, although he was pursuing $1.5 million, but instead vengeance, as he was looking for Mr. Goodbar. To feel vengeance achieved, one must be conscientious that comeuppance has been given, and sadly, Nedry was the very first casualty during the InGen incident. He was never able to feel vengeance or to appreciate that $1.5 million. Mr. Goodbites, looking to earn an honest day's pay, scammed out of his money, blackmailed into free labor. They went looking for Mr. Goodbites, and he was found with damaged red corneas, red and bloated face, gaping mouth, and thick tongue with flies buzzing around. His body mangled, intestines torn open and one leg chewed through, smelling of old dried vomit, being scavenged upon by Procompsignathuses after laying undiscovered for 12 hours out in the park. And the park warden left his body there to rot and be pecked at before the entire island was ultimately firebombed. I, I can't read the character the same way again. This forever changes my interpretation of Dennis Nedry, and the explication has made all the difference. So in conclusion, I offer this up to the listener. Does Mr. Goodbites allude to looking for Mr. Goodbar? Does that allusion therefore further inform our reading of Dennis Nedry? Should Nedry be viewed with a more sympathetic lens than is offered by the narrative? Does this allusion strengthen that sympathy? Or did he simply get what's coming to him? You fuck around and you find out. Thanks for tuning in for this strange and special and weird little episode. Looking for Mr. Goodbites. Looking for Mr. Goodbar. Check the movie out, man. It's crazy. It's crazy. You'll never forget it. I want to sign off thanking you for joining me, for joining in on this special episode. If uh, you like this sort of thing, let me know. <laughs> I don't know. It felt weird doing it. Uh, obviously, if you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you'd like about Jurassic Park, please do that by connecting with me here. RyanSRogers at gmail.com If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. You can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book or also not the book all you want. Like the movie, Mr. Goodbar. Jurassic Park is part of the Spring Chicken's banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chicken's Funny Pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the second last graphic novel, that's The Infantry and the Worst of Them All, The King Street Papers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com finding me on Facebook facebook.com slash spring chicken capers or on Twitter at Rogers Ryan 22 thank you for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast the Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park so
Until next time.